Welcome back to Dare to Feel. I'm your host, Alexandra Roxo, creative artist, best-selling author of Fuck Like a Goddess, transformational and spiritual mentor and coach. This series is based on my latest book, Dare to Feel. In each episode, we'll deepen into topics around intimacy, relationship, spirituality, healing, and beyond. In today's episode, we're speaking with yoga teacher, entrepreneur, author, Brett Larkin, about how her rock bottom transformed her life and brought a body of work into the world that would touch many. I hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. I am so happy to have Brett Larkin on today. I haven't had a lot of people in the yoga world on the podcast. I don't know if I have had anybody, actually. Um, I don't know why. Maybe it's because I myself am not a Hatha Yoga daily practitioner anymore. And um, so it's less in my kind of field, the kind of the, the physical yoga world. But my partner and I both... I think practice other types of yoga, like other types of, and and when I say yoga, um, I say it with the uh, definition of a practice of uniting or union with something deeper. And I'm curious what the the word yoga means to you. Just your book is called Yoga Life. And so there's so much in that title. What is the what is what is yoga to you? Because I want to define that for this audience because likely people listening are like, okay, you know, is yoga hot yoga? Is yoga meditation? Is yoga asana? Is yoga like what is it for you? I love this question. Thank you for having me on, first of all. And I'm with you. I don't do a traditional Hatha yoga practice either anymore. So I do write about that in the book. And the definition I give in the first chapter is, for me, the definition of yoga is simply awareness. Mm -hmm. Awareness that I am not my thoughts. Awareness that um, I am a body that's being breathed. Awareness of my habitual thoughts and patterns. So the key to awareness is the breath, which is why I also write and talk about how breath is more important than poses, or if you have to choose to prioritize breath work over poses. Uh, Because yoga, when it came West, I think a lot of things got lost in translation. And yoga has constantly been evolving. I write about that in the book. There's a chapter on the history of yoga. So I can dive in and talk a little bit about that if you think it would be interesting. But that's how I define yoga. Uh, So if you're doing like a backbend or a handstand, but you don't have awareness of your breath, I would just say that's gymnastics. You're not doing yoga. Right, 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 right. I like that so much that yoga is awareness because like, I don't know, mine is like yoga is attempt at union with God or, or something like that. You know, that's my own kind of personal definition. It's like the path of uniting with that divine essence within. And that's very rooted in the Sanskrit, right? right? It's like that yoking, that coming right. together. Yeah. Uh, so I think that is definitely a great definition. I mean, what are we bringing together? Head and heart, right. masculine and feminine energy, like us and the divine, all the things. Yeah. But I open the book with just this very simple concept of just if you're noticing your breath, if you're noticing your thoughts, you practice yoga today because you took a moment to pause and come into that kind of witness consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I hope people, you know, will read your book to hear more about that kind of historical piece. I will say for me, when yoga came into my life, it was via, um, 
the teachings of Ramdas that came from Neem Karoli Baba and via Paramahansa Yogananda and his SRF um, foundation, which um, or organization rather, and and those are two very particular lenses, but they were really rooted in the spiritual and and not that. I guess it all is in a way. Um, Yogananda's practices felt like very much like you are on a path of awakening and liberation, and um, and also Ramdas is like more the. It feels like more that masculine, like ascetic path where it's like the kind of um, more strict, austere, rigid. That's what I'm trying to get at. Like both of those, the way that yoga came to me was through that lens of austerity. Um, And it was like, okay, I have to, you know, I have to be pure, right? Like that was kind of my um, way that it, that it found me. It was like, I'm purifying, I'm becoming pure. These practices like are, or, you know, I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do this and I shouldn't do this. So for you and your, who's your core teacher that brought, brought, if those are, let's say the teachers that brought me yoga and meditation when I was like 18 or 19, almost 20 years ago or 20 years ago, um, who are the teachers that you're like, okay, I got the transmission of what it is um, from this teacher, like that embodied transmission or that felt sense where you get that kind of shock up your spine or whatever. I got that when I read Be Here Now. I was like, holy shit, like my whole awareness open. Um, What was that for you? Mm, I remember reading that book too and having a similar experience. My primary teacher is Alan Finger. So he's the founder of Ishta Yoga, which stands for Integrated Science of Tantra, Hatha, and Ayurveda. So it's a very tantric approach, very rooted in Ayurveda, which I've kind of tried to revive and bring back with the book because I'm offering a personalization framework for yoga, which I think you might really dig because it sounds like we have similar backgrounds with yoga. And I think our background is is the common one, right? It's like we come to these methodologies that were mainly codified by men. They were designed to be done for men uh, back in ancient times uh, for 12-year-old boys. And then for kind of the grandfather class, they would, Mm -hmm. once they were kind of done being a grandfather in their town, they would often take up yoga, renounce all their belongings, go wander in the woods, meditate in a cave, really as a preparation to leave their body. So yoga was very much about doing these practices to leave their physical body and get ready for the next life because they believed in reincarnation. So we see that yoga was primarily about leaving the physical body. That's what it was preparation for. The body was actually seen as an obstacle to overcome. So it's like the body has all these pesky urges. It wants to eat. It wants to have sex. It wants, you know, and so it was a lot about how do we silence all of that Mm -hmm. so that we can, you know, channel this upward current of energy, which honestly, in many ways, I do a lot of kundalini yoga and I've studied a lot of these different traditions. I mean, that upward energy is almost kind of like an ejaculation. Right. <laughs> like that's what that is. And so yoga's really been um, so much about that. Yoga changed drastically in the Industrial Revolution. So at the end of the 1800s, Krishnamacharya really repositioned yoga and he said, no, yoga is actually good for the body. Mm. And that kind of set the stage for yoga to then come west. Um, it came west and got integrated with the group fitness movement and the Jane Fonda era that was sweeping the U.S. by the time it got here. 
but I think the next hundred years of yoga are going to definitely be more about the downward current of energy and the mm. embodied approach. And what I have found work for that is that you need something that's deeply personal that you orchestrate and create yourself. And that's why I wrote the book. I mean, a couple reasons, but yoga should be integrated into your daily life. So the reframe I'm trying to offer is that instead of yoga being seen like this additional fitness activity or to-do list, that you just start to see your whole life as a yoga studio and realize that these Vedic principles can be integrated into your relationship or argument with your partner, with your parenting, with how you're running your team and your business, and just trying to make that really simple for people to do. I kind of reduct it, honestly, into just like three core concepts. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then how to make the physical practice really potent for you personally, mm -hmm. so that even if you only have a short amount of time to practice, you can do something that's more designed for what in the Vedic life stages would be called like the householder stage, which is what we're all in and probably everyone listening to this is in. We're not those 12-year-old boys training for the equivalent of priesthood. We're not those grandfathers preparing for the next life. We have more constraints on our time than ever before. We're extremely busy and dealing with so much coming at us. And I believe the householder needs a different type of yoga. And that's the framework I'm trying to put together and offer. Because honestly, all the texts we have, I mean, especially the Yoga Sutras, which for whatever reason is the text we love in the West about yoga when there's so many great texts. Right. But that really is a textbook not for the householder. No. It was really designed for those other two groups of people. Which is hilarious because that's what I learned from. With And it's like, it was it, again. It's like we're not all meant to be those twelve-year-old boys or those grandpas. I love that you <laughs> presence that. You know, well, the thing about those people is they didn't have any other job. Yeah. Practicing yoga was their only job. They were either in a monastic setting where mm. you know there was like group food, group like everything was being taken care of for them, so they could devote their lives to these studies, this eight-limbed path that yeah. has a lot of different components. That was their only job. Yeah. And same thing for the the grandfathers, yeah. right? They literally left their families behind. So we've been holding ourselves to this standard oh God, that was yeah. really never intended for anyone in our actual situation, which I find so fascinating. And I don't feel like enough people are talking about no, this. No, not at all. It's especially this is such a beautiful conversation because it's like so many of the spiritual practices that have found their way their way to the West, even like Tibetan Buddhism or other types of yoga. It's the same thing. It, they, it's like trying to apply a language from a different time, a different place, a different whole set of cultural standards. And like you said, even a different, um, you know, I don't know, period of life or circumstance, right? Completely different circumstances. It's like trying to apply those to our lives. Um, it's kind of cute. It makes me think, oh, we're so cute. We're so hungry for some spiritual ground. We're so hungry to like get in that we're like, great, I'm going to just take these yogic practices from the yoga sutras and try to apply them to my life, even though I have three kids and I'm working full time and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, wait a minute, that's just not possible. Um, and I wonder like if if the there's like a void that we've all been, we're all trying to fill, right? As especially Westerners or Americans, like I think about this a lot in my work. It's like that we have a kind of a spiritual hunger and a spiritual void because many of us come from this like Protestant or or like 
you know, Judeo-Christian Abrahamic religion background. Like, that's changed nowadays. There's a lot of other religions, including a large Muslim population in the U.S., of course, of course. But the U.S. was founded on that kind of Protestant um, principle. And I just, I'm wondering, like, what do you think about, like, why are so many people probably millions, right? Like, of, like if you look at who's going to yoga classes or even even engaging in some Buddhist stuff too, with stuff, um, why are we so spiritually hungry or empty that it's like the consumer, consumerism also has gotten projected onto all of that. And, and we're yeah. still confused because we're trying to do things that, like you said, are actually not quite going to work for us. No, 100%. I I love what you're saying. I think we have this hunger and yet what's common in our culture and we see this throughout the culture is that we abdicate our power. We want to be told what to do, right? right? We want to be given a script or a prescription or a even if it's a prescription for a meditation. I mean, look at how popular TM is, right? right? And like that is such a so um, transcendental meditation yeah. for those who don't know what that that stands for, but it's very much like you are given a mantra, you are told, like you are initiated. Right? For so, twenty minutes, you so, sit in this and, way. Da, 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 da. Yeah, and again, that works for a lot of people. I mean, the, the, here's the good news: is like yoga works, breath work works. We both experience that. Like even when we were practicing within these more rigid systems, you're going to get value out of it. I mean, these practices. That's to me the beauty of these practices are so incredibly potent at helping you manage your energy. That's another way I define yoga is like the science of energy management. Mm. However, um, what this can lead to is some of the problems I think we've seen with yoga over the past 50 years. Cults, guru culture, Mm -hmm. right? People, again, abdicating their power and their responsibility, which is just so common in the culture. We do this in our Western medical system all the time. Like I work with so many students who are really just like attached to their diagnosis or attached to what someone told them. Like so much of what I work on in my online yoga teacher trainings is like, how can you be a body detective? Like how can we put on like a cute Sherlock Holmes costume and start investigating like why why does my knee hurt in this way? Or like if I move in this other way, like a lot of self-experimentation. And to me, Ayurveda is really the secret sauce that helps a person unlock a more personalized approach Mm. to a lot of these ancient wisdom traditions. My theory is that yoga was never actually meant to be practiced outside the context of Ayurveda. Mm. So I'd love to dive into that a little Mm. bit if you are open to Mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. There's one thing I wanted to say. What was it? Um... I can't remember. Oh, well, no. Uh, well, one thing I want to just, one little thing. Um, I don't know if you know the work of Richard Rudd for, who created the Gene Keys or channeled the Gene Keys. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah. I do. Yes, I've read so, it. So one thing that he talks about is at this time, this shift from spirituality being um, about worship to it being about embodiment. And what it, what I feel and this I'm getting kind of a little bit more in the theoretical here with you, and then we'll move into Ayurveda. But it's like, I feel like the feminine lens, gaze, we cannot escape embodiment because of our physiology and our bleed and our, it's a complete, it's like, there's nothing, like if we had the, the other weeks out of the month that we were trying to, um, 
transcend, let's say, and be outside of the body, it still wouldn't work because our hormones are so, you know, shifting for those of us who have that experience in our body. This is my sort of another part of my theory here. Um, And that people like you or me are devoted in a way to bringing that feminine kind of gaze to everybody, to to people of all genders. But like, hey, my spirituality is found through the inclusion of my body. Nowadays, we're seeing this a ton. It's like, and, um, and I still, it's still not integrated because if it was, then we wouldn't be killing each other across the planet because part of that deeply embodied, heartfelt, feminine, birth-giving, nurturing experience is very rare to also be a killer with that. I'm not saying that it isn't possible. Of course it is and it happens, but there is something that I really appreciate to hearing you say and it's like how uh, how bringing this, this embodied experience, it's taking the gaze off of the worship piece and onto the embodied piece and bringing the yoga there, whether it's you translating yogic teachings or somebody else doing that with Buddhist teachings or whatever. Um, I do think there's an element of it that to me is part of my kind of personal uh, ideology is feminine. And, you know, people may not agree with me and that's totally fine, but I think it's part of the gift, right? That here you are, a white Western woman, beautiful, blonde, thin, whatever, right? And that you're saying like, hey, there's something about these teachings that didn't nece- that don't necessarily fit for us within the context they were giving given to us in right within that like they were they were taken out of context and so let me now pull them through my body i'm a mom i've gone through hard things and let me apply them and that's i think that's brave as i'm saying that i'm like that's brave brett <laughs> so anyway interlude before ayurveda but like that's brave Hi, everybody. Quick break here. I just want to ask, have you ordered my book, Dare to Feel? If you haven't, I would encourage you to order it now. First off, because as an author and an artist, I so appreciate you supporting my work. But second, because I want you to benefit from all of the goodies in the book. There are so many tales and rituals and writing prompts and poems about healing and transformation, all centered around intimacy, relationship, family, the heart. Second is I want to invite you to come join me in my online spiritual community where we do sensual practice, creative practice, and spiritual practice, just attempting to be well-rounded, multidimensional women. It is a women's only space. I'm offering a two-week trial that you can pop in and come to some of the live gatherings or just do some of the recorded practices at your own pace. It's really a place for transformation and expansion, and I hope to see you there. Now, back to the episode. I mean, the 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 bravery is was really... Uh, they say necessity is the mother of invention, right? So what's interesting is that I had these inklings 
always, right? I was like, why do I have to wear white when I'm practicing Kundalini? Why does it have to be at four in the morning? Why do I have to say this mantra first? You know, like so on my cycle, I'm tired, for example. Like I don't want to do that. Or, you know, so I, w- I always kind of had these questions, but I never felt brave enough to really do or say anything about it. My primary concern was like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble with these different yoga styles or my different teachers. So I was kind of keeping it on the DL. <laughs> but what happened is that I became a, a new mom for the first time, something I know that you are, are going through. And it is such a life changer. I mean, just talk about a total game changer. And I, that same year that I gave birth, I walked my father through a death portal. So he passed away. He lived with me. He was in hospice inside my home. I was his sole care provider. He never remarried. My parents were divorced. I'm an only child. So when I say like sole care provider, it's really true. And it's interesting I was just reflecting as you were talking about these feminine roles that we take on, right? Like nursing, being a new mom. My business was scaling that year, fighting on the phone on the ins- with the insurance company on the phone for my dad oh my and then God. sitting with him. Like I couldn't practice the rule book anymore. Like it just wasn't feasible. And it's so funny because I think we're in this place where we're like, okay, well, if I if I do the Kriya and I, you know, do the breath work perfectly. And this is where I see so many of the questions that I get from my community where they're like, they're really afraid to do it wrong. Like they want that gold star. They want that check mark, you know, uh, to get an A in the class, right? Like we we just we want to get it right so badly. And once I wasn't able to go to group yoga classes anymore. I wasn't able to even teach the sequences or the kriyas or the material that I was putting on social media before because I had no time. Like this year was so incredibly humbling in the way that it just broke me down. The way I would practice is I would set a timer on my phone for however long I had. Sometimes it was seven minutes, five minutes, 20 minutes. And I would just go inward and move intuitively. And I would break all the rules. Like I would do Kundalini and then I would do Yin or I'd skip the opening mantra and, you know, interweave some more myofascial release somatic type movement or not even knowing what that was because this was like a long time ago. And I remember doing that once and finishing the practice. I was also, you know, using a lot of music. I I was like, what can I leverage to just like get myself centered as fast as possible before like my baby cries or my dad yells, you know? And so in a weird way, that year was a blessing because that particular situation that I was in, like wrote me the permission slip that I'm now feel like I'm trying to write for everyone else (laughs) with this book and some of these teachings. And by going inward, I so I remember one day I felt really amazing. Like I stopped my practice. I was seated in meditation. I was like, whew, that was just what I needed. Like I feel mm. really good. This is like that yoga glow, right, that you get after a long group class or whatever. And then I remember thinking, my timer didn't go off yet. Mm. My phone must have broken. So I like, I'm like, what am I late for? Right. So I rushed to look at my phone. And I think I had set the timer for 20 minutes that day. And it was 16 minutes. Mm. And I had practiced such a personalized combination of breath work and what I call the soulmate postures. All of our soulmate yoga postures are different, but those are the ones that usher you into your flow state the fastest and the most efficiently through breath and essential spinal movement. Uh, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, how did I get myself feeling this good in 16 minutes? Because I had been told it took 90. Mm. 
And then I had to follow this script for it to take 90. Mm-hmm. So that was when I was like, I need to deconstruct this and figure out what this yeah. is and then find a way to share it with people. And I mean, now we can go into Ayurveda because that's a big piece of the, the framework. Well, one thing before but, you, <laughs> I keep interrupting you, but because you mentioned your dad, I just want to read the first line of your introduction of your book because I was like, damn, that's brave. Um, this This first line of your writing. Um, I knew I had hit rock bottom when I was sitting at the dinner table, 17 tabs open on my laptop, simultaneously feeding my infant and wishing my dad were dead. I was the sole caregiver for my father during his life ending battle with cancer. At the same time, I was a first time mom caring for my newborn son, managing the explosive growth of my business and unpacking boxes from a move to a state where I knew no one and had no support network. All I could feel was shame. Anyway, the first line was the most hitting. I just decided to keep reading because to give it a little context, but that's such a powerful thing to admit publicly that you were, uh, you know, that you had hit rock bottom and you wish your dad had already passed on and that that was part of the impetus, this, you know, really come to Jesus moment, we call it in the South, which obviously this isn't Jesus per se, but this come to Jesus moment where you're like, something's got to give, right? Like this is, I hit, I hit the bottom, like something has to shift. And I think what a powerful um, what a powerful threshold for you to transform that pain and frustration, um, into this body of work. So I just wanted to presence that before we move on, because that really, I felt that was really powerful. Um, I was like, okay, I get, I get the necessity, right. The necessity for this Thank you. Yes. And I write about later in that chapter, like I thought the Kundalini police were going to show up at my house. I thought I was going to get in trouble for practicing this way, even in the privacy of my house. Like I wasn't even teaching or talking about this to anyone yet. And I remember sleeping and staring at the ceiling at night being like, am I going to get in trouble? <laughs> like, Am I allowed to do this? And, and it just shows the extent to which we've outsourced. Like here I am, a woman in my own body, very connected to my body. I've danced since I was you know, three, like all the things. And I'm still questioning, like, is it safe for me to move this way, even though it feels incredible (laughs) uh, on my own yoga mat? So what happened after that is I started doing a bunch of research into the history of yoga, which we've talked about a little bit. And most people listening to this podcast probably know what Ayurveda is. But just in case, um, Ayurveda is it's translated as life sciences. And it's this galaxy of holistic healing modalities that originated in India alongside with yoga, predate yoga in, in many instances. And it really is centered on the idea that each of us is unique, that we are all individuals. And the Ayurvedic system... Uh, And I simplify it in the book and I say that, but it works with three primary elements because Ayurveda to me has been the most profound when I've been able to take a high level view of it Mm. because there's a lot of rabbit holes you can dive down. And if you want to do that, you should. I have great teachers I can recommend. Uh, But Ayurveda says we are made up of earth, air and fire with one of those elements being dominant. 
And so they call those three elements the doshas. And that word dosha in Sanskrit literally translates to fault line or that which can go wrong. Mm. So that was really interesting. So it's like, why? Mm. And the reason is because whatever your dominant element is, is the one that's most likely to skew out of balance. Mm -hmm. So I have a dominant element of fire, which means my fires, when, when things in my life are stressful or I'm not taking care of myself or I'm not centered and embodied in my authenticity, that fire element is the one that's most likely to uh, you know, spike out of balance. And what's, what's interesting is that once you know your dominant element, we, I think people understand conceptually that all these yoga breathing techniques and poses affect our energy. Many people think yoga just helps you relax and that all the breath work just helps you relax. That's not true. I mean, there's very stimulating, energizing breath work in poses. So you can really hack your energy or modulate the thermostat of your body house, I call it, using these techniques. But you kind of need to know what you're working with. We know that each of us react reacts to medication differently, right? Like that's commonly understood. That's why so many of these medications have so many side effects. So it's like I, I was talking to another expert the other day and she was saying we only share 10% of our gut or something like that. So like we all are very, very different. Mm -hmm. And Ayurveda has acknowledged that from the get-go. And it really changes the poses and the breathing techniques that you might choose to practice on once you know what your dominant element is. So I primarily practice breathing techniques and poses that are soothing that mm -hmm. fire because I know that that fire tends to run really rampant for me. So just to ground this in a practical example for folks, one of my go-to pranayama techniques is satali breath, which is a water breath, which is cooling, right? Now that might not be appropriate for everyone, but for someone like me, if I only have a little bit of time to do breath work, like that is an excellent choice for me. Mm -hmm. And when I started looking at yoga this way, so many more things started to make sense. Mm. I have a big YouTube channel and I'd have people message me like, oh, I love this class. I love this Kriya. It was amazing. I love the breath work at the end. Someone else would message on that same class. This gave me a migraine. Mm. And I'd be like, why? But like when we understand that everyone has these different elemental makeups, so true, it yeah. makes perfect sense of why these postures and techniques are affecting us all differently. The issue is that yoga has been presented as a group fitness class where we're all supposed to be doing the same poses on the same breath cadence at the same time in the same order. And then, you know, to tie it back to your point, which I also make in the book, it's like, I think of every day as an equation. How much sleep did you get? You know, what's the political state of the world? Where are, are you on your cycle if you're menstruating, right? Um, how much work do you have? What's your stress level? Like there's all these things, all of that equals your available energy. And then yoga is the science of energy management. So once that equation's done, how I choose to practice in order to nourish myself is going to look really, really different day to day. So, I mean, this is an incredibly mm. complex, but I do simplify it in the book. There's quizzes that help you figure this out, but this is complex. Mm -hmm. Like we are unique, which means we need personalized yoga. And then us as unique people are always changing, mm. especially if you're female throughout the month. Yeah. So you need an adaptive practice. Mm -hmm. Like you can't outsource this. You need to, and, and this is what I do in the book. It's just like, you just need to know a couple key principles mm -hmm. and then like an apothecarian 
uh, like a herbal shop, you can whip up a tincture, you can whip up a tonic that can meet your needs and nourish you in however long you have to practice, whether it's five minutes, 50. I go with 20 in the book because that just seems feasible for a lot mm-hmm. of people. But then in the last chapter, we like deconstruct those 20 minutes and we're like, here's how you do it in five. Yeah. Here's how you do it in 10. The ritual I teach is modular. So you can just pull pieces out. Mm. And I show at the end with examples of like people and types of personalities. Like if you don't have a lot of time and you're stressed and you want to calm down, here's how you'd like do your five minute Mm. thing. If you need energy because you're about to present and you have this type of uh, Ayurvedic constitution, like here's some tips and tricks of how you'd jigsaw this together. Yeah. I love that. And I think I've never heard it kind of in that yogic Ayurvedic way, but it relates in to like, I mean, I talk about it and many people talk about, you know, the cycles and the different times of the month for women where you would maybe adjust different practices. Elisa Vidi, who's been on the podcast, her book, um, A Woman Code, talks about that. You change your food, you change your um, exercise routine, you change the way you have sex, all based on your hormonal cycles. Um, and I think also in like in Chinese medicine and in like Taoist practice, it's, it's a similar thing. It's like what you're talking about, the, you know, the pitta, the fire in, in some of the Chinese Taoist traditions, there obviously there's different interpretations. It's like that young energy is fire is the masculine. It's like getting things done, pushing forward, moving at high speeds in the world. And I think that our world, and of course, this is not something original coming from me, but we are a young, dominate, dominated society. We are a, uh, uh, we have an abundance of that energy. If you go sit and just meditate, let's say in an airport or a mall, you know, you would feel more than anything. You're not feeling like a kapha earth energy. Um, you're not seeing like a Mayan grandmother's like gently stirring a cacao or, or tending to a garden. It's like people rushing and doing things, right? It's a very fiery, fast um, kind of a, a world that we live in in the West, especially in the United States. So it, I do appreciate this. Like, well, imagine being an, in, an Indian, a person who li- is from India and being a young boy, like you're not, you're not probably in the same dominant energy, obviously that we are in nowadays, especially, right. You change the time, the, the time in, in history, you change the, the context and the space and all of that. And of course, like you said, like you, we can't apply the exact same thing that was given to a whole different body and body size too. And body type is a whole nother thing with yoga that obviously like, again, it's really tuning in to what works for your, for your body, for your form. Um, I think, you know, it's just, I appreciate you going, Hey, like let's liberate ourselves from being overly dogmatic. And, and, it's not at the expense, it feels like, of reverence to the practice. I can feel your reverence to the practice and to your teachers because that's the other point, right? It's like sometimes Americans just kind of like remix things without having um, a deep knowledge of it or a deep long-standing practice with a particular tradition and that has its own shadows as well. But it's it feels like where you're coming from is like, no, I have reverence for my teachers. I have reverence for the lineages and traditions, and I am going to be fully honest and, and 
bring the illumination that I am not in India in the whatever time period with as a little 12 year old boy or a grandpa. I am a woman now, a mother. I am a business owner. So how do I do that? And I think that that's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a tricky thing to accomplish well, you know, because mm-hmm. it could be that a practice is brought to like a surface interpretation or kind of remixed without that deeper devotion. Um, and I think for somebody like you, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's almost like it's a lot to hold on your shoulders, you know, to go, okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to have the courage to do this in a way that is really deeply honoring. And I have to stand and know that I am in integrity with it and that this is actually going to support people at this time on the planet. In a lot of the research I did for the book, something that helped me feel more confident and liberated doing this was just seeing that yoga has evolved. It's never been static. Mm -hmm. So it was even repositioned within India by Krishnamacharya in the late 1800s. So the my take on this is that anytime there's a huge global change right like the invention of the printing press or like all of a sudden we're working in factories yeah. instead of farms i mean these are things that globally changed our world um yoga was repositioned always during those big movements yeah. i mean krishnamacharya really changed a lot of things. He intermixed, he added a ton more poses influenced by Indian martial arts, European gymnastics. Mm-hmm. A lot is influenced from European gymnastics. Um, mm-hmm. The original text, you know, there's not many yoga poses. Most of the focus is on meditation and breath work. The Hatha Yoga Pradipika shows 20 postures, uh-huh. you know? Right. And if you look at how many we have today, so he really did like a DJ remix and and it, in a wonderful way, I think, because he made yoga relevant for everybody. Mm. He said yoga is not here to transcend the body. Yoga is good for the mm-hmm. body. And there's an athleticism to yoga. And he really amped up the athleticism because for him at that time, he was trying to get more young people into mm. yoga. So now I see us in a similar moment, right? I know some people are still working in factories, but I think we could agree like it's the information age right now, right? Like there's another big shift happening um, in 20, like in 2024, right? So how these practices need to adapt uh, has to change and evolve. We need to be able to make them shorter. We need to be able to integrate them more throughout our life, which I'm saying in the book, because we're exposed to so much more information than ever before. Mm -hmm. We're exposed to more information in a day than our great grandparents were in their entire life. Oh my gosh. People, did you hear that? No wonder you feel overwhelmed. I feel overwhelmed. (laughs) So we need you know, we, we need mini practices. We need yoga habits. I present all these yoga mm. habits in the book, which are just easy ways you can slip yoga in, in between other activities. And then I think, you know, the core point that we're really connecting on, because I think this is like a big place where our work overlaps, uh, like a Venn diagram, right? Is that these practices weren't designed for women, at least the ones that we have documented and written yeah. down were not. And men's hormones are regenerating on a 24-hour cycle. It's like the sun. It's like that consistency of like doing the same right. thing. Like that makes sense. Yeah. That that does make, make sense. Women, that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're regenerating on a 28-day cycle. So like 
things are going to need to change right. <laughs> to change like you know when i just think of like that hormone grab of like progesterone and estrogen estrogen right yeah. like it is so drastically different it's like how could the same yoga practice be appropriate yeah. and then you factor uh, in so when we the in- first menstruation premenstruation you factor in menopause you factor in people who have hormonal differences or abnormalities you factor in pregnancy so it's not even just the 28 day cycle it's like that has consistency but we got all kinds of variations in our lifetime you know Exactly. Yeah. And I do have an adaptations appendix at the back of the book for menopause, for pregnancy, for a lot of those common life stages and goals that people have told me they're interested in. Like there's also one for weight loss because people ask me about that a lot. So it's like, okay, if you're making your personal ritual, like here are some additional ideas for this particular stage. But it comes back to that like life is an equation thing. Like it's impossible. You can't outsource this. It's impossible to think that someone could like design a practice for you or you could find a YouTube video, which honestly, like I'm kind of putting myself out of a job because (laughs) that's how I make a living, right? It's like YouTube videos and certifying yoga teachers. Um, But this book I really hope is like, helping you become your own best teacher. Mm. I would love for everyone to do teacher training, but that's a 200-hour commitment. I know not everyone's willing to do that. And what I think I what I am proud of in this book is that if you just learn a couple key concepts, like kind of what we talked about in Ayurveda and a couple other key things, it's like you know enough to create your yoga tonic that nourishes yeah. you. And I think that's a big reframe. It's like when you see your practice as something that nourishes you instead of something you have to do, mm. well, ding, 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 like that's the secret mm. to the consistency that everyone's DMing and asking me about and wanting. Like right. everyone's always asking me, how do I be consistent? How do I have a consistent practice? And it's like, well, you make your practice intensely pleasurable and nourishing <laughs> to you and then you never want to skip it. Right. But I don't think we've been taught how to do that. No, it's also just, again, it's not a part of how we were conditioned as children in the West to tend to the mind, right? To know that the mind is a whole entity that is going to create our reality, broadcast everything out of us onto life, right? It's our it's our lens, it's our frame. So we're not taught how to work with the mind. We're taught how to work with intellect and brain and geometry, right? And to 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 learn at school. But learn learning that the mind and the body are working together and then the spirit, that that there's this synergy that we are we are at the center of meaning like we have agency over, like you said, we are abdicating from a young age, our power, whether we go to church, we abdicate to the priest or the pastor or whatever. We abdicate our spiritual power to someone outside of ourselves very young. If you grow up in any type of, you know, religious context that has that hierarchy. And then we're abdicating our mind to school, to public school system that is determined by a largely probably you know group of white men in 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 room boardrooms and councils and that kind of thing and our and our bodies yeah we're abdicating to the medical system greatly right and so it's all this archaic it's like i mean i'm not trying to get on a whole patriarchy thing here because <laughs> i'm trying to be over blaming anybody cuz we i was probably my last life i was probably sitting on the council of nicaea saying some shit talking some shit about women you know i don't know so i'm not going to try to be all blaming about it but Basically, we are attempting to graduate from these archaic systems where we did give over our mind, give over our body, 
give over our spirit. Many of us are still stuck in that. And that's not our fault. It's our conditioning, right? Like my mind is conditioned to see myself as not good enough because I saw all my life. This is what's good. or This is what's, this is what's good. This is what's not or whatever. Um, the same with the body. It's like all of that, that uh, I don't know what's happening in my body. I can't connect with the intuition. So I need to go to a doctor and have them tell me, which I love doctors. They're helpful, <laughs> you know, um, and the same with the spirit. So I love that you're saying create a daily tonic where you get to be in the deep relationship with your mind, body, spirit in a way that works for you, right? Using the frame of yoga, Um and I think that that's, that is a liberation for all of us to be able to reclaim our relationship with our mind, body, and spirit. And it's not that we can't still trust a, a, a priest or a rabbi or whatever. That's amazing. It's beautiful to have leaders, but it's that the source is from within us, right? That when we feel shitty or we have a bad, like you said, a headache or something like that, we can take a moment and feel and take a breath and go, huh, I bet it's because I drank three coffees or <laughs> whatever. I didn't drink enough water yesterday, right? My cycle is coming on, whatever it is. I watch too much TV, right? Instead of having to outsource. And that that moment where you stop and take a breath is the yoga. And notice that is yoga. Yeah, yoga. Exactly. Sorry. It was my, yes. that was my, According to this framework. That was my long yes, trajectory yes. to get to that. <laughs> Yes. No, I mean, there's one more thing I want to touch on here before we um, close. And and I think you're going to relate to this too, which is a piece of this that I think we have to bring up at this stage in the conversation, which is, you know, we're talking about making it personal. We're talking about integrating it through your life, hence yoga life, right? But in order to do this, you have to have a couple big mindset shifts. One is that you have to truly believe that the results of your practice are cumulative. So the analogy I like to use here is like if I opened a savings bank, a savings account at a bank and I was putting in just even a couple cents a day or a couple dollars a day, I would trust fully that that money's not going anywhere and that money's going to grow. And that in fact, there might be a compound interest effect of me putting money in it regularly that would help it grow. But what I find with the spiritual yoga wellness community is a lot of us, we don't have that belief and we don't have that mindset around seeing our nervous system calibration as that kind of savings account mm. bank. So we think, oh, well, if I can't do the 30 minute thing, or if I can't do the 90 minute Kriya, or if I can't be wearing white, or if I can't be up early, like it, it doesn't go in the bank. While the, the reframe I'm offering here is like, just three minutes of breath work are worthwhile. That is money in your nervous system bank. And if you're doing the right pranayam for your personality, like in a specific moment, well, that $5 just became $20 that you donated. So a lot of times I'm doing that quick little in-between yoga, the habits I talked about, like in the car or even at my desk. And this is the other thing that I wanted to just say is like, it doesn't have to be pretty to be potent. Mm. I give examples of this in the book, but I think again, a lot of us, myself included, like we still think it has to look like a scene from Eat, Pray, Love in order for it to matter or, or go in the bank. I we have to like, be in an eco retreat. Naked. <laughs> yeah, we have to be swimming in the ocean naked. We have to be in an eco retreat in Bali. I have to be in front of my favorite teacher. I have to, you know, like all these conditions. And so 
I talk about in the the book, like just a couple of anecdotes. I could have added more, but like I've had some of my most profound spiritual moments where I felt the Kundalini awakened in like whatever you want to call it, right? In a teeny tiny hotel room where I barely had space for my mat between the bed and the wall. I have a lot of my best practices, like practicing in pajamas, often dirty pajamas with laundry around me. I had one of my most heart-opening moments looking at a tampon wrapper in a bathroom, just breathing. Like There is crazy amount (laughs) of potential healing for us that we don't tap into because, again, it's almost like the good girl complex where we're like, well, it needs to look a certain way in order for it to count. Right. Right. And so if you're going to start really doing these yoga habits and integrating yoga into your life, you have to have this shift where it's like the the portal is always open. Like I'm channeling money into the nervous system, savings account bank all the time and really believing that it matters because otherwise you won't do these little things. But the little things really do add up. They do. And that's where if you're somebody who's a practitioner like you are and you know that it's a 24-7 practice. Like we are in practice all the time. We're practicing something. We're either practicing thinking negative thoughts about ourselves. We're practicing being busy. We're practicing scrolling. We're practicing taking in other people's lives on the internet. We are always practicing something. And so I, this is, you know, what I preach and what I've gotten from my teachers too, is like, so what are you practicing? Choose. You're sitting there on the toilet at the airport bathroom you practicing what? Thinking about uh, what you're going to eat for dinner? Or are you going to take a minute and you can practice taking a breath and dropping into your belly or whatever? And, and then that's more of, you know, kind of my teaching is dropping into the body in a certain way or the heart or the, you know, the yoni. But it's a choice. And you're saying, hey, people, choose. What are you practicing? Find the things that unlock your deepest joy, passion, flow, find those practices, your soulmate practices, and then integrate them into your day. You're in the shower, do the practice. You're pooping, do the practice. Or are you just going to scroll for 10 minutes? You know, which is fine too. We all need those moments. But I, I think that because again, our, our, our first level of conditioning we didn't get that like your whole life is geared towards your awakening. We didn't get that kind of more Eastern um potential frame of your life is a gift here you are like you have karma you're burning you fought along you fought hard to get here right like in tibetan buddhism if you look at the book the work of pema children or something she's like you have no time to lose you fought hard for this incarnation we didn't get that transmission in the west we're like hey you have no time to lose because you need straight a's you need to look really good you need to be thin, you need to be pretty, whatever it is, like that was what we got. So for us, we have to find the reframe, whatever it is. Maybe for you, it's not, uh, for you listeners, it's not about reincarnation or karma, but maybe it's about like, I would just like to live happily and feel good in my body and feel connected to myself. That's fabulous. So orient your life towards that and just notice all day you're either orienting towards that or orienting towards worry towards shame, whatever. So anyway, it's those, like you said, it's those little moments that especially, oh my God, especially becoming a mom, (laughs) like (laughs) it's those little moments that are where we do our yoga. 
Yeah, you have to milk those. You have to maximize those. And so um, there's a bunch of them in in the book. And I would love to hear other people's like uh, when you come on my show later, like tell me what yeah. you've come up with as a new mom. Because like, yeah, for me, I'm utilizing my garage. I, I do a lot in the bathroom, a lot in the bathroom. I mean, not just on the toilet, but like just in my bathroom, right. I have a yoga mat. Mm-hmm. So anytime I'm waiting for the bath water to run, I'm, I just pull it out and start doing some little poses. I used to run around and try to clean the house and hope I didn't flood my second floor while the bathwater ran. Turns out that's not relaxing, right? Mm-hmm. So I just do a little bit of stretching. I've really let go of what it looks like. I mean, on Saturday morning, I, I take that same bathroom yoga mat. I might do some cat cows. My husband's shaving. We're talking about weekend plans. I'm not now. Do I also want to do like a more deeply connected? Yeah like ritualistic practice? Yes. But is that better than nothing? Yes. And I used to get so upset when people used to interrupt me in meditation, especially if I were doing like these long Koreas. I'd be like, ah, it's taking me so long to get hot. You guys don't talk to me. Now my husband talks to me when I'm meditating all the time because his point's like, you're meditating so much. Like, what am I supposed to do? He'll be like, what time's the birthday party? And I just answer him. And I'm just like there. And like, it's fine. Like It doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. And I'm I'm just like, wow, like who's the more advanced practitioner? Like, yeah, the circumstance is not perfect, but like I'm able to just completely be here mm-hmm. with my heart open to him, answer the question, yeah. be with my breath, be doing what I'm doing. And, you know, that feels like an advanced yoga practice to me. That oh, feels totally. like progress. Totally. I mean, that's it. And it's like, can I maintain presence and deep awareness mm-hmm. and connection to my breath, even though I'm getting quote unquote distracted every two minutes? I mean- that's a big LOL that we're experiencing over at the house here. It's like my partner and I have been practicing yoga, meditation. You know, for me, I also have like creativity and sensual kind of practice, whatever. We've been practicing all kinds of stuff for years. Now, can we do it when we have a baby that's like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> and all of our friends, I think we're like, wow, really excited to see how that changes your practice, you know? And yeah, I'm excited to see, but you know, the if we look at the Bhagavad Gita, which I think is a really overlooked text here in the West, like it is stated black and white, off the mat is where the highest yoga takes place. Mm. I mean, Arjuna literally asked Krishna, he's like of the, you know, recluse yogi or the yoga of action, like which is higher? And Krishna says, Yo- the the yoga of action, meaning the householder mm. path, is the mm. higher of the mm. two. So I, I couldn't get that line in the book, but like I have other courses, like I, I have a history of yoga course, like that that dives into this a little bit more. And like when we start looking for the evidence, like it's there, it's so liberating. Um, or the Radiant Sutras are another great text, which I mean, so embody I think like everything that you talk about. Um, so again, it's like we've we've been given a very small sliver of what yoga really is, even though yoga's been in the West for so long. Right. So I'm I'm hoping that you know listeners get inspired to do some of this research, or you, know, you can you read the book, read read um, your book as well, Alexander, which I can't wait to have you on my show about, but. Um, it's, it's really fascinating because I do feel an energetic shift yeah. that we're moving into. And I really think the next hundred years, yoga is going to look very different. Yeah. It's going to be all about that downward current of energy instead of that upward current that we've been so focused on so far. Yeah. So funny. I had all these questions that were about 
your transition into motherhood, your rock bottom. And we geeked out on yoga and spiritual kind of, you know, theory and why it applies to us, which is because I get so turned on by that as someone who cares a lot about our collective spiritual soul, which you are tending to with your work and I am tending to with my work. And I think, you know, there's so much about you personally that I want to know about your journey and experience. And it felt important to talk today about this greater this great gift that you're doing in this devotional practice of your soul's incarnation to tend to the spiritual core of the time, the place, the people that um, we are a part of in the collective. Because I think it's really important. And I think that on a whole, we wouldn't be creating harm for each other if we had some sort of common ground spiritually as a human race, right? Like, I, or, I don't know if that's even the right word. Or a way to soothe ourselves and self-regulate and nourish ourselves. Exactly. If right? we're not like regulated, much- we're going to hurt each other. <laughs> One hundred percent. So I just really wanted to break that down for people. Like, why? What? Uh, this is my like. I have this Aquarius, Aquarius moon. It's like I like to look at the collective. Like, I like to look at the whole. Like, why someone like you is is actually creating a beautiful shift that does impact. And we're all doing. We're all. I mean, all of us. Like a lot of us, not all, of us, but many of us are doing this in different ways. And it's like it's it's a such a beautiful, um, a beautiful uh, act or life's calling. I think uh, not that one's better than the other in any way, shape, or form, but to be here tending to the spiritual core or the soul of a time and a place and a people in your particular way, in your very Brett way, in your very beautiful lens, the way that you used the word like equation and all of that. I'm like, that's so different than the way my mind functions and the way that it's like you have a particular genius and talent that you're bringing to people, to people's spiritual lives, which is also their whole life, which is also their embodied life, their mind, their family life. But I think that it's important for us to remind people that all of that, that tending to your spiritual life is upstream. Tending to your mind is upstream from your family life, from your financial life. Like, and that's why it's important because it's like, we can't go, and this is where it is kind of like bottom up, right? Like, and then like you're saying, maybe there's going to be another iteration that's, um, I mean, top down, bottom up, which is a whole different conversation. And there are other people that are tending to that aspect of humanity as well. Um, so anyway, not to get too out there for people, but but I do think it's so beautiful to just acknowledge what you're bringing to the collective space right now. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me, for being willing to have this conversation and so appreciating your viewpoint. I love how you take this bigger lens and how you zoomed out just like you did. It's really actually inspiring for me to think of some of the work that I'm doing because we do work so hard as entrepreneurs and business owners. So it's really fun to have in mind uh, the picture you just painted as, you know, we keep doing all the 
the work in the world. Yeah. 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 I like, I like that as well. It's a good reminder. It's not just for us, you know, and it is, we are a part of a time that's pretty big on the planet when hasn't it been, but it feels big, you know, where we are right now. I hope that everybody takes the time to follow you, look at your YouTube videos, which are great resources and to buy this book. Um, especially if you're drawn to yoga, um, which tons of people are, obviously millions of people are drawn to yoga. Um, and so yoga in itself can be such like a big conversation. This seems like a really easeful place to begin for modern It's people. so doable. That's the feedback I've been getting. People are like, this is so approachable. I can do that. So the book is Yoga Life, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. Which is it. Thank that's, you so much. That's modern life for everybody. So <laughs> I mean, I haven't met anybody who's outside of that paradigm so much, unless you're at the monastery, which then you have the internal chaos. But <laughs> yes, exactly. the ex external has been quieted for you. Good job. Um, not our incarnation this time. So speaking of external chaos, I know you have um, a family to get back to and a business to tend to and a body to tend to. And so do I. So anything else you want to just throw in before we close or... No, I've just been really grateful for this conversation. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I'm excited to connect with you on my show. Yes. And I realized um, one thing, yeah. you guys, I didn't read Brett's short bio to begin because I got so, so on, I was on one. So let me just read it. So because I usually read it to start people off. So we're doing it in reverse today because I was inspired and I let the spirit take over and I didn't even look at any of my script of questions. <laughs> um, Brett Larkin is the founder of Uplifted Yoga, the author of Yoga Life, Habits, Poses, and Breathwork to Channel Joy Amidst the Chaos. Her online yoga teacher trainings have set the standard for quality online certification since 2015 and matriculated thousands of yoga teachers. Brett's award-winning YouTube channel with over half a million subscribers and Uplifted Yoga podcast empower you to actively design your life using yoga's ancient wisdom. Yoga enthusiasts love her courses on Kundalini Yoga, Prenatal Yoga, and the Uplifted Yoga Academy. So, wow. I just want to, you know, praise you for all that. Like, that is a lot of work that you've done to have that much um, beautiful, uh, that many beautiful accolades in your work and business. So congratulations for that. And um, so good to have you here today. I hope everybody enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to share it um, with a friend and we'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I want to offer you some questions for contemplation, integration, and writing if you wish. The first one is to consider, was there something in today's episode that touched you or moved you or triggered you? An image, an idea, a story, take a moment and just think about it. Is there anything that provoked you, that reached inside of you, that perhaps brought up a memory or an idea from your life? What in this episode inspired you? Was there something that surprised you that stood out for you? Could you jot it down just to remember? Maybe it was a concept or something that the guest said that, that brought you to some new awareness. 
Was there something about this episode that upset you, that provoked you, that pissed you off? Giving yourself full permission to dive into that. Was there anything about this episode that soothed your soul? That helped you feel a little bit more belonging? A little bit more at home? A little bit less like you're the only one? Taking those questions into your heart or into your journal or into your day. If anything stood out that you want to share with me, please do so on social media. Direct into my DMs. I would love to hear what touched you what moved you, and what you're taking from this time together. And if this episode truly inspired you in some kind of way, share it with a friend, like, subscribe, and write a review. It means a lot to me. Thank you. So happy you're here with me, daring to feel.